I have to take a step back here, perhaps, you know, and, and really give you a picture of what it's like to live under the Islamic Republic through the eyes of, you know, a black woman. And in my case, a black queer individual, you know, someone who at the time was perceived as a black girl. And race is not a topic of conversation in Iran, in the Islamic Republic. It's also not a topic of conversation in the larger diaspora. That's Priscilla Kanku Hoveta, a black Iranian woman who spent much of her childhood growing up in post-revolution Tehran. Born to a Congolese father and an Iranian mother, Priscilla's vision for its future is clear. An Iran free of the theocracy that took over in 1979. But she and other black Iranians want their country of birth to work through another problem that's not often discussed, anti-blackness. Demonstrations across the world have drawn thousands of people to the streets, calling for an end to the current government. But Priscilla feels black Iranian lives have been ignored. What many people don't know is that Iran, like many nations in the Middle East, has a long history of enslaving black people. The practice wasn't abolished in Iran until 1929, but the legacy of the inhumane practice still lingers in Iranian society. Priscilla told me that black people are taking an active part in the protests, but their efforts aren't recognized in mainstream media, nor within Iranian civil society at large. And that's largely, largely due to the fact that we have to operate in a dictatorship that does not allow us to talk about our differences. Saying that you're black in Iran, you know, in a in a, in a way that's like an identifier of who you are is not accepted by the Islamic Republic. As far as the Iranian government is concerned, and when the Iranian government has an opportunity to rub America's own racism in its face, they pounce on the chance. At the height of the George Floyd protests in 2020, Iran's Supreme Leader Ali Khamani tweeted, and I quote, the people's slogan of hashtag I can't breathe which can be heard in the massive protests throughout the United States is the heartfelt words of all nations against which the U.S. has committed many atrocities. Foreign Minister Mohammed Javed Zarif tweeted on June 1st, and I quote, the knee on neck technique is nothing new. Same cabal who've committed the habitual lie, cheat, steal, have been employing it on 80 million Iranians for two years, calling it maximum pressure. It hasn't brought us to our knees, nor will it abase African-Americans. Hashtag world against racism. Mosameh Ebtikar, vice president on women and family affairs, also known as Sister Mary for her role as a translator and spokesperson during the Iran hostage crisis, wrote on May 31st, and I quote, all humanity stands with you against racism, against discrimination, against oppression, against imperialism. Priscilla finds the Iranian government's public statements about racism in America amusing. It's not about the fact that it's not happening in the U.S. It's about the assumption that black lives in the Islamic Republic of Iran is respected, is celebrated, is is no, it ain't. Black lives in Iran are way more monitored. I have a friend of mine who was arrested on the streets six, seven months ago, maybe eight months ago by now, because of his locks. 
by the besieged, walking down the streets with his locks that he had been maybe rocking, managed to rock for maybe a year. And then that day the besieged arrested him and said that he looked on Islamic. He was arrested. They detained him for, you know, the time that they detained him, maybe two, a couple of days, and then they let him go. And then he would, he was then, he had a trial and the judge sentenced for him to have his hair shaved and they shaved his hair in the court. We're talking about a black man. This is someone of African descent who is still trying to understand exactly like the histories of his ancestors in a country that doesn't allow you to like think of it in that way. Right. And it's overwhelming, right, to hear this. I, I mean, because it, I hope that it makes people think of all these other stories and, and narratives that they haven't think about, thought about when they think of Iran. In this final installment of Liberating Iran, we're going to try and do exactly that. Yeah. Here's what it's like to be black in Iran, Nagy. as told by Priscilla Kanku Hoveda. One of the biggest things of the Iranian protests deals with self-expression, especially wearing hair coverings. You've seen men and women dancing in the streets, an action that can get you tossed in jail, or worse. In a previous episode, you've heard how singing unsanctioned music can get you a prison sentence. For black Iranians, navigating self-expression can be even more dangerous. When you're young, you're black and you're Iranian, and you're into, let's say you're into, let's say you're into black culture, because I mean, you're black and Iranian. Right. And you dress, let's say, you know, with a little bit of large clothes on. Maybe you found um, ripoff of a Lakers jersey. Perhaps your understanding of black culture is more so towards black American culture. Right. Because that's what you've been cobbling for yourself to understand it. You don't have real Lakers jersey because you get all the knockoff stuff from China in, because of the embargo. Right. In Iran. Just a little reminder of where we are. And, you know, as a black young man or young girl, you want to dress like this, the police will stop you all the time. Why are you dressed like the CIA? Are you American? Do you work for Americans? But because you're black, right? The projection in a non-black Iranian mind that's working for the police that's filled with nothing but air and ignorance is that these are American kids. Look at the way they dress. They listen to these unholy music called rap, you know, and look at the way they dress. They're, they're perverted. That's how they say in Farsi. They're perverted. And that perversion is projected onto us. So we're way, we're super targets. You're kidding? It's like it's here, right? So many, so many folks I know say, I can't go out because I'm black. I can't go out on the streets and protest because I'm black. I, when I was on the street protesting um, back in 2009 during the Green Revolution, one of the time I went back, one of the first reactions of the people on the street was like, get her back in, get her back in. They're going to know she's a foreigner. They're going to think she's a foreigner. They're going to, my blackness, you know, and it's, it's, it's the, it's the case for, for all of us. No matter if you've lived there all your life. It, it, and also obviously being called all sorts of, you know, racist names and slurs and whatever you can think of. 
This reminds me of a tense moment at last year's World Cup. An Iranian reporter asked U.S. team footballer Tyler Adams, who is black, about racism in the United States before chiding him on mispronouncing Iran. First of all, you say you support the Iranian people, but you're pronouncing our country's name wrong. Our country is named Iran, not Iran. Please, once and for all, let's get this clear. Second of all, um, are you okay to be representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own borders? And uh, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the past few years. Are you okay to be representing the U.S.? Meanwhile, there's so much discrimination happening against black people in America. My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, yeah, that being said, you know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and, and kind of assimilate into different cultures, um, is that in the U.S. we're, we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. Now, look, the reporter questioned Tyler because the U.S. team had the nerve to express solidarity with the Iranian protesters. It was a reporter's way of telling Tyler to mind his own business. And that's is saying, you've got plenty of race issues in America to deal with. The question was also framed to tell him to stop sticking his beak in Iranian affairs, lest he become like the white men who have meddled in Iranian affairs in the past. It was a combination of chiding, pseudo-admonishment, and deflection. The reality is that Iran has its own abusive relationship between law enforcement and black people. It's impossible to gather any statistical data on police brutality against black Iranians because researchers can't easily collect this information. But Priscilla and other black Iranians have plenty of stories. Back in December of 2019, she and her friend were walking around in Tehran. I was stopped several ways, several times um, during that, that trip by the police because of my appearance, which includes obviously being black. Um, and the one of the times was with a friend of mine who's also a black woman. So she's younger than me. She, she at the time she was uh, 22 and um, her hair is braided. So she had box braids, um, kind of long, you know, coming out of, of her of her hijab as a result. Um, and then I had my curls out and I put my hijab on top. I did, you know, I pulled it down a bit, but I wanted to keep my hair out. So it, it was coming out of it. So we got arrested. We got stopped, um, called into the van. And, um, you know, my friend proceeded by saying that, uh, this is not even my real hair. So why are you policing this? If you have an issue with hair, she just uses arguments to get away with whatever is happening, right? It's like, what am I going to say? so that they don't arrest me. Maybe this time if I say this is not even my hair because they're extensions, maybe they won't arrest me, right? This is just someone trying to not get, you know, not get this matter out of hand by the police. You know, but the, the response of the police was racist. You know, of just like, and what about her and her and her and her cotton on her hair, you know? And, and you know, I, I, got, I get my hair searched in Iran. My hair is searched when I travel domestically. Priscilla and her friend got out of that situation without being arrested, but they were pretty lucky. Iran, of course, is not alone in criminalizing black women's hair. It's taken decades for the U.S. to respect black women's hair. 
At least 20 states have passed some form of what is known as the Crown Act, a piece of legislation that protects women from workplace discrimination over their hairstyles. It was first passed in California back in 2019. The U.S. House passed its own version of the bill in March, so the legislation is now sitting in the U.S. Senate. Though the bill covers all races and genders, it was specifically designed to protect the type of hairstyles black women wear, such as cornrows, locks, twists, afros, and bantu knots. Here in the U.S., black women face the highest instances of hair discrimination, according to a recent study by Michigan State University. The New Crown 2023 Workplace Research Study found that 66% of black women changed their hair for a job interview, more than 20% between the ages of 25 and 34 have been sent home from work because of their hair. And black women are 54% more likely to feel they must wear their hair straight to a job interview to be successful. My point is that black women, even in the most powerful and so-called freedom-loving nation on earth, face some of the very issues black Iranian women face. The major difference is that black women in the states have recourse and there are well-established communities here that black women can turn to for support. Priscilla and black Iranians don't have any of that in Iran. As I speak with Priscilla, I ask myself, why aren't more mainstream media outlets here in the U.S. and Europe reaching out to her and people from her collective about the protests? A Google search of black Iranians directs you to Priscilla's work and some non-black Iranian academics who do research on black slavery in Iran, but virtually none deal with the black experience in the protests or what they think about Iran's future. Then again, I know why, and so do you. Western media tend to undervalue black voices everywhere in the world, and most Western correspondents are white men who hardly think about black people in their home countries, let alone in a place like Iran. Let's take the hijab angle of the protests. State authorities claim Janah Masa Amini was taken into custody because her hijab was improperly worn. This arrest eventually led to her death. The issue for black women in Iran is that they are often punished for the texture of their hair alone. There's no law in the books against black hair in Iran, but one of Priscilla's last experiences with hair discrimination in 2019 made her feel like it was. Last time that it happened, I was uh, lining up. There were five women in front of me. And so in security at the airport, you know, they say, come forward, open your coats. Right. So it's separated for women, separated for men. So I was with the women's section. There's five women before me. The first woman goes and, you know, pull your hijab down. She pulls her hijab down. OK, you're fine to go. The other woman, the other woman, the other woman I knew. And I was, again, the only black woman. And this is Iran. So she asks me to come forward to open my coat, which is part of the mandatory um, Islamic outfit under, in Iran. You have to wear a coat and you have to wear a hijab that covers your hair. You have to wear something, sleeves that comes all the way to your wrists and you cannot show legs. If you use makeup, it cannot be too bright. 
You cannot wear sandals or open shoes. You cannot show, you know, feet as a woman, etc., etc., etc. So when comes my turn, she says, come forward, open your coats, just like everyone else. I open my coats. Then she says, pull your hijab forward. I pull my hijab forward just like everyone else. And then she says, she puts her gloves on, which she didn't do for everyone else. And she says, now, would you bend forward so that I can search your hair? And then she parts my hair, which are cur it's a curl fro, and then she searches it. You know, last time that happened, I was, I missed my flight and I took a taxi back to where I was staying and I just couldn't move. You know, I just sat on the bed for like five hours. I remember I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't move. My anxiety was off the roof because obviously it wasn't the first time. So it's triggering. You're the only person. I mean, it's, it's dehumanizing, you know, it's, it's dehumanizing. And the fact that it happens to us, black women, you know, or, I mean, somebody can come forward and come argue with me. Oh, but I have a big fro. It happens to me too. I don't care. I have 25 of a thousand examples of things that happen to us because we're black. I don't want to entertain nuances in black experiences in Iran when it comes from non-black folks, you know. But of course, it's not to say that every single black woman in Iran who has traveled has had her hair searched. I think it's a, you know, it comes with certain conditions that are gathered and probability of it happening. You'll have curly hair. You're black. According to me, you know, is, is, is quite high. Um, and when I sat with, you know, when I speak with friends, with people I know, people, sisters, you know, chosen family, um, we, you know, we, we exchange experiences like that. We exchange moments of humiliation. It's one of the many things black Iranians discuss on Priscilla's online community, collective for black Iranians. She started the collective in 2020 to give space to black Iranians to express themselves online. If you Google black Iranians nine times out of 10, you'll find Priscilla in the mix somehow. Some of her work includes sharing short interviews on YouTube with black Iranians who've left the country for places like the US or Canada. One of them, Barzin Eskandarha, is being interviewed by his brother Alex, who's also a black Iranian. As Barzin looks through the family photos of his time in Iran, one from his adolescent years catches his attention. There's this photo, which was in Iran at the airport. And uh, it's just crazy because like, it's the, the way it's captured, it's just like all eyes are on us and that's how it felt. And I don't want to sound like um, self-absorbed, but that's how it felt walking in Iran being a black Iranian. It's just like, I felt like all eyes were on us at all times. At home, both our parents speak Farsi. So we don't uh, speak an African tongue. You know, we don't have a, we don't know our, our native tongue. Yeah. But um, also, I don't identify like physically as an Iranian. So I'm like, sometimes I'm constantly trying to prove to myself and to other Iranians that I am Iranian. And sometimes I'm trying to prove to myself that I'm constantly that and reminding myself of my blackness. So 
it's more of a uh, internal issue than external, I would say. They could go anywhere from, what, really? Or, you're not Iranian? Like, what are you talking about? You don't look Iranian, you don't sound Iranian. So, it's, it's, most of the time it's usually positive. Like, I've had, I remember when I was uh, at this, at our shop, at our carpet shop, an Iranian couple walked in, or like a happily middle-aged couple. They were from Canada, but their dad was visiting from Iran. And like, he didn't speak any English. So then when I told them, when I told the couple I was Iranian, and they translated that to him, he was like so ecstatic and happy to see me. He's like, oh, can I get a picture with you, man? Like, I wanted to go and show my family that, like, you know, it's a black Iranian, like, full Iranian. I'm like, cool. Like, it was like, it wasn't like anything, any Asian or anything weird behind it. It was like, I felt it was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Yeah, I don't mind. He did, he was intrigued because he'd never seen a black Iranian. But there's so many black Iranians. There's a lot. And it was crazy because when I, when, um, I was in Abadan, I remember seeing so much. Like, yeah, they have, like, straight hair and different hair textures and different styles than us, but they're still black. And it's like, it's not like the whole city is black, but there's a, it's a lot more of us there than the rest of the country expects. His story sounds innocent, and to an extent it is. But imagine being the center of attention 24-7, always having to explain the simplest aspects of your life over and over again. It can wear you down. Alex, Barzine's brother, shared his own hair story. Because he's a man, Alex didn't have to cover his hair, but he still had to navigate hair politics in Iran, just like black women. At the time I was uh, in Kermanshaw, you know, I asked my teammate, Amir Hussein, I said, you know, any haircut, you know, take him to the barbershop. He said, okay, we go. So the next day, get in the cab, head over to the barbershop, it was a weird, weird cab ride, you know. Dude's just staring at me the whole time. I could feel him, just, you know. And he asks me, what do you mean, soft you? What are you talking about, bro? <laughs> what do you mean, straighten my hair? You know, I just had it in braids, you know, I had it all curly and stuff, you know, it's wild at this point, but you know. Straighten my hair. I walk in the barber shop and I look. I'm like, damn. I was a little nervous. It's not a brother cutting my hair, so <laughs> anything can happen at this point. Uh, you know, I'm waiting for my for my turn. Then I get in the chair, and at this point, you know, a couple months in Iran, they think I'm still a Khariji that I don't speak Farsi. You know, I'm a conversationalist. You know. At this point, I can understand everything. And I hear a boy say, I turn around and I snapped. If I come out of this chair without a fade, somebody's getting their ass whooped. Alright? <laughs> Long story short, dude still messed up my haircut. My fade was terrible. Terrible. So, moral of the story, make sure a brother's cutting your hair. Hey, <laughs> boy, boy. I'm happy the brother didn't have to throw hands because I don't think he would have fared well in an Iranian jail. But these are some of the stories black folk in Iran deal with 
and it's something that Priscilla wants to document. The collective has featured the work of black Iranian singers, rappers, writers, and other professionals. Some of the video clips are of black Iranian Americans who discuss their journeys of understanding their Iranian roots. As you watch the videos of these black Iranians speaking about their experiences, you can see why Priscilla is so motivated to share their stories. In a way, they amplify her own narrative of black Iranian identity. What makes her journey unique is that she wasn't born in Tehran. Most black Iranians are born in coastal cities and south. So a lot of black communities are in the south because of migration and also because of the south being closer to the Persian. It's the Persian Gulf. Um, there was a lot of economic migration and folks also coming from Africa into Persia. Um, in the, in the 1800s, um, as well. And there was also, um, the Persian Gulf slave trade, um, that took place up until 1929. And just to give a little bit of perspective, my granddad was nine years old. My non-black, my non-African granddad was nine years old when slavery was, was abolished in Iran. And slavery in Iran being abolished in 1929, meant that Persians and folks in Iran and at the time the kings of the Qajar era, but also at the beginning of the Pahlavi era, would enslave folks from across the region, including in Africa, including folks from Zanzibar, folks from Tanzania, and just like the eastern the eastern part of, of, of Africa. And if you even look at the etymology of the word Zanzibar, from the Persian perspective language, Persian language, it means the coast, the coast of the blacks. So you can hear the gaze, right? By the way, same with Sudan in Arabic, land of the blacks. So you can also, in, in the fact that in Persian, Zanzibar in Persian means the coast of the black, right? Shows already that there was a connection, there was trades, there was some sort of um, rapport between the two regions. And then, you know, there was the slave trade, um, uh, the enslavement of, um, Africans into Iran. Um, folks were bought around Mecca. They had slave markets outside of Mecca, you know, um, selling, um, folks and, uh, the, the prices would be more expensive for black folks with lighter skin and, and less expensive. For black folks with darker skin, they would have leaflets in Arabic describing, like, you know, who you're coming to buy. Um, we don't talk about this, especially not in America. You know, in America, we're so, it's important to talk about our identity as immigrants. You know, I immigrated to the United States as well. I understand how important it is to talk about our identities as immigrants, as, you know, coming from the Middle East, coming from Iran, and how we exist in the American society. As a black woman, you know, to me that comes before all of that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something that upsets me that we, people are not versed on, on the fact that there, 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 there was a slave trade up until 1929 and that there are, as a, you know, there, there, there is a legacies lots of legacies that have not, and histories that have not been looked into. And so we just whitewash all that, you know, the Middle Eastern way. 
Very intentional efforts have been made to erase the history of slavery in Iran, according to Bita Bahulizadeh, scholar of enslavement, memory, and race, and author of the forthcoming book, The Color of Black, Enslavement and Erasure in Iran, with Duke University Press. She told the Story of Iran podcast that one of the first things Reza Shah Pahlavi does when he gains power in 1925 is remove slavery from the books. The practice ended in 1929, but Reza Shah Pahlavi isn't remembered for that because he erased the footprints of the practice altogether, she says. Iran was trying to fall in line with other European and progressive nations that had abolished slavery decades before. The UK abolished slavery in 1833 and the US followed suit in 1865. The Shah was trying to play catch up. He wanted to be like Europe and the US with their strong legal stances against slavery. And he didn't like that they knew that slavery was still legal in Iran. American and British newspapers had even published articles about the Persian Gulf slave trade and how Iran still had slavery on the books. It was just so embarrassing. It had become a matter of reputation for Reza Shah. So abolishing slavery was actually one of the first things he did as Shah. Iran signed on to the League of Nations Slavery Convention in 1926, and by 1929, voila, there's a rush bill passed through Majlis, Iran's parliament, that made slavery illegal. All enslaved people were from here on out recognized as free, equal to anyone else in Iran. But I want to be clear, abolition was not a humanitarian effort. Abolition was a process of erasure. Reza Khan wanted to make everyone forget that slavery was ever a thing in Iran. And if we take a minute and we just think about the different types of things Reza Shah is remembered for today, the kinds of things we might learn in an undergraduate Middle Eastern Studies history course, or the types of points that are made in nationalist debates about whether or not Reza Shah modernized Iran, People will talk about how he banned the scarf and secularized Iran or revolutionized the naming system with the last names or introduced language reforms and so on and so forth. No one ever brings up the abolition of slavery. But actually, Reza Shah prioritized abolition over all of these other changes. Iran abolished slavery in 1929 and all of those other reforms took place in the 1930s. So you could almost say he didn't only erase slavery, he erased his own accomplishment of erasing slavery. In the following decades, Iran tried its best to wash away any remnants of its history with African slavery. Even the definition of slavery took on a more U.S. meaning, namely chattel slavery, which would basically free Iran from any responsibility of being a slave nation, at least in the Iranian leadership's minds. And in those decades, narratives about plantation slavery in the U.S. start to become really popular in Iran, and slavery takes on a very U.S.-centric meaning. Even the blanket term for slavery in Iran, Bardadari, or the singular for slave, Bardeh, which was used in the 1929 law to abolish slavery in Iran, now implies plantation slaves and plantation slavery. Reza Shah was deposed in 1941, and his son, Mohammad Reza Shah, was crowned Shah. And he also was not interested in Iran's history of slavery, and he actually took the erasure of slavery a step further. Not only did he not give his dad credit for abolishing slavery, it was during his rule that it gets totally attributed to Cyrus the Great. 
And I don't want to get into all the ways that this is a problematic statement, but when slavery was abolished in 1929, we know that it doesn't matter whether or not Cyrus the Great freed all the slaves 2,500 years ago. And even if he did, it doesn't mean that Iran had never had slavery since then. You see, Iran didn't have chattel slavery in the way that the U.S. practiced it. Most of the people who owned slaves were elites who used them as house servants and units. The history of African slavery is also a relatively new subject in Iranian scholarship. So there's much more that we don't know about Iran's relationship with enslaved Africans. It's a major reason why talking about it is so hard in Iranian society today. And how the Supreme Leader can make lofty statements about Black Lives Matter as if his own country doesn't have a history and present of abusing Black people. For example, many Iranians are likely unaware of the story of Nargis, a Black woman in Iran who was kidnapped and illegally enslaved in Tehran in 1906, or Haji Nane, the black woman who helped free her from captivity. Here's their true story, as told by Collective for Black Iranians. A big time merchant bought Nardigus as a gift for his wife, but Nardigus cried the whole time saying that she was a free woman, saying that her mother was an enslaved woman or their father was free. The merchant found the slave trafficker and asked for his money back because he really wasn't expecting all this drama from this person that he enslaved. The slave trafficker gave the wife and the merchant some money and prepared to leave with Nargis. But the merchant's wife gave Nargis instructions on how to escape. Basically, hang back as the slave trader walked ahead and slip into the neighbor's house. The mullah who lived there would give Nargis refuge. When they left the merchant's house, Nargis found the mullah's front door and entered. She told the mullah her story of being a free woman and he believed her. Nargis could stay as long as she wished. The slave trader would have none of it though. Now the trafficker knew she could not force Nargis out of the house, so she took Nargis' presence to bribe her out of the house, vowing to never sell her. Nargis knew that this trafficker was straight cap and stayed her tail right in that mullah's house. Meanwhile, the slave trader found a parliamentary representative and his wife who agreed to buy Nargis. So they created a plan to kidnap Nargis from the mullah's home. They went to the mullah and asked him to release her, saying that they treat her like their daughter. The mullah was like, nope. But the parliamentarian and his wife ended up bribing the mullah and his wife with gold. They all agreed that Nargis would be kidnapped on the way to the public bathhouse. Now, the thing about this was that it was a good plot because going to the bathhouse was a common activity in Tehran back then. So they ended up kidnapping her en route. Nardigus was enslaved again, but she wasn't gonna be anybody's slave. And she heard this sister named Haji Nane, a formerly enslaved black woman who helped black folks get free. After a few days, Nardigus ran away from the parliamentarian's house and found Nane and stayed with her until it was safe to move around freely. This is just one of the many stories of Black Iranian history that's been buried. But thanks to Priscilla, these type of stories are being unearthed so that Iranian society can reckon with its past and address its present.
Priscilla was born in France, but spent much of her childhood moving back and forth between Tehran and the suburbs of Paris. It's a complicated story, so we won't get into it. Her childhood of living in Iran, in many respects, was a typical one, especially during the 1980s and 90s. In other ways, she was very much isolated. My first memory of being black in Iran or memories associated with war, that was in the, um, in the 80s, in the late 80s, when um, Saddam Hussein um, and Iran and Iraq uh, were fighting. And I remember running down the streets of the neighborhood and hearing the, the, the siren, which is this very sharp alarm that's announcing that the city is about to be bombed or that there's about to be attacks. And they're just running down the street into back into the house and then into the Zirzamin, which is, um, the basement, which is where we would go so that we would be more protected in case of, uh, of bombing to our, to our house. So I, yeah, these are my first memories being. They're also my first memories being black and they're also my first memories being black in Iran because all of it happened at the same time, obviously. <laughs> She's reflecting on the Iran-Iraq war that started in September of 1980 and ended in August of 1988 via a ceasefire. But that wasn't the only conflict Priscilla had to deal with growing up in wartime Tehran. She was one of the only black people in her neighborhood along with her sister. Her dad is from Congo, but she grew up with her non-black Iranian relatives who didn't understand how to raise a black child. She ducked and evaded missile strikes like everyone else during that time. But one thing she couldn't evade were the threatening stares from her fellow Iranians. It felt like I was being watched. It felt like, um, you know, it would depend. It would depend if I would be going to the supermarket with my grandmother. I was raised partly by my grandparents, my Iranian grandparents in Tehran, and by my single mom as well, who's also Iranian. So my father is black and is African from Congo and Angola, but I was raised by my non-black Iranian family, my Persian family. And so, you know, being black in this environment in Iran in the 90s, but also throughout, you know, just being black in the community, in the Iranian community, in Iran, it was just reactions all the time. I would hear people, random strangers on the street, just whisper the word siyah, which means literally black, the color, but also the reference to someone who's black, Sia. And depending on how it's said and pronounced, it can also be the N-word. Um, so I, it's, that was, that was just the way I was named, you know, Sia, 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 come here, Sia, why are you black? Um, did you stay in the sun for too long? How come the palm of your hands aren't black? Why are your hair so funny? Why is your hair so funny? It was just a, it was, I wouldn't call it curiosity, you know. Um, I felt watched. So imagine going to the dentist and sitting under that mirror that's looking into your mouth. Imagine having like a lot of those mirrors or, or being, feeling that you're having all these mirrors, just eyes just watching you and whispers just wondering why you're looking this way. 
I was also always the only black person, you know, so that's also the big difference with being in Paris or being in New York or being in LA or being in London or being pretty much anywhere else, including many African towns, of course. The difference in Tehran is that I would not see black folks for months, except, you know, from my own reflection or that of my sister. I would not see black folks. Um, I can count how many times I saw black folks growing up in Tehran and spending months and months and months at a time, you know, and under five times. It's to tell you how, how folks were not used to my side, or at least they pretended not to be. For all the challenges Priscilla experienced in her life, she has achieved a great deal. She has law and business degrees from Suborn Law, ESSEC Business School in France and New York University Law. She lives in Sierra Leone now. The African continent inspired her black liberation work. For more than 10 years, she's worked as a human rights lawyer for the United Nations Children's Fund, other UN agencies and non-governmental organizations and Democratic Republic of Congo, the Islamic Republic of Mauritania, Central African Republic, and Nigeria. Negotiated with armed groups to release children from their ranks, to release girls who are used as sex slaves. Every time I say it, I can't believe I'm saying it. But what's even more difficult is that it exists, obviously. And, you know, mainly it's been on war-torn parts of, of African countries that I've lived. Um, and for a long time, these were the destinations that I would go to, were places that, you know, had been in war or were, were about to fall in war, like in when Bongi fell, when Central African Republic um, fell into war again, um, is when I lived there. In Nigeria, I was in the east, northeast, which is where Boko Haram is, has a stronghold, uh, an armed group. So... You know, it's not so much of a typical experience with Africa that I've had. Um, now it's becoming more, you know, um, Freetown is a lovely town. It's a peaceful country. And um, it's about, you know, the intersection of human rights and, and arts for me in many ways, which is basically being creative and still conscious as we are being creative. She has many titles, but the theme they all share is that of black liberation. She wants all people to be free, but she knows black people's call for freedom isn't heard as loudly as those of non-black Iranians, and she wants to change that. I asked Priscilla if she feels liberated. As she answers, she tells me about her friend Tara, a black Iranian woman who was arrested in Tehran for protesting against the state. Not at all. I don't feel liberated at all. I can't be free until everybody else is free. We know that, you know, um, I just had, you know, I had, I have to tell you this story, Terrell. I know we've been talking for a while, but I need to tell you this story. Um, I have a friend of mine, um, someone I consider family, a sister, and she was arrested during the protest. She's black of African descent in her case. So everybody black in her family, they're all of African descent. They don't know where exactly they're from. Stories of slavery and enslavement. She thinks it's somewhere around the eastern part of Africa. And she was arrested while protesting. And, you know, spent a month in jail, 
we're talking about a black woman, so now it stands out. As I said, she lives in a predominantly non-black city in Iran. And prior to her arrest, you know what she was doing? She was writing all these notes in pieces of paper. Hundreds of notes, Sarah. Like little pieces of paper that I'm showing you to the screen right now. That's like maybe this paper folded in two, right? And then she would just write chants revolutionary chants like why should people speak up why she thinks they should go out and demand change and she would say you know i think you we should go out so that we get a chance at being who we are or so that we can sing on the streets or so that i can rock my curls out or so that this and that and she would write hundreds and hundreds of pieces of papers and then go and distribute them into people's mailboxes and the people's homes and everything and then once she tries to reach out and when we finally manage to discuss, she goes like, oh, you know, I was online the other day. And when when I managed to get on and because there is a VPN you need to use and all that stuff, I came across this post on social media. It was about Harriet Tubman, she tells me. She was like, oh, have you heard of Harriet Tubman? I'm like, yeah, of course I've heard of Harriet Tubman, my love. You know, um, what did you read? She was like, oh, it was this quote. It was crazy. It really, really left an imprint in me. I'm talking about a black woman. Please, you're bearing with me, right? She's like me, except both her parents are black and Iranian, and she was born and only lived there. She goes, I read that quote from her. It's crazy how it's true. And I said, she, there's a lot of quotes from her that are really crazy and true. And she goes, the one that she says, like, I freed thousands of slaves and I would have freed thousands more if they had known that they were slaves. She says, that's why I write these papers. I'll, I'll write them and write them and write them until they realize that we can continue living like this. We can continue having it less than others, you know? And she got arrested. She was, she went to jail and now she's awaiting judgment. You know, she's out on bail and she's awaiting judgment. Her case was eventually dismissed, but Tara still had to endure racism along the way. It's all the time. Yes, of course. I mean, prior to her arrest, during her arrest, during detention, during the moment where she was in front of the judge. It's constant. She stands out. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's it's often officers, you know, turning these female officers because she was in the aisle with, with with women and girls. Obviously, it's segregated. Um, and, um, you know, just making jokes all the time. Like, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is our girl from Africa. This is our African. This is our African woman of the group. This is, this is our, um, you know, where are you just making fun or making sounds? You tell me, or, you know, we don't even talk about it much, you know, Terrell, because it's so present that we don't need to have conversations about, so what happened today? What did you do? What did they say? You know, because it's like you're already going through the trauma. Like you're not going to debrief every time you go through it, you know. So she she doesn't, you know, she she would talk about when it's really bad. But on top of being detained, on top of, you know, fighting for her literal freedom. Um, you know, what does liberation look for me is when, um, you know, my sister doesn't have to like write notes for people to know that it's not okay to, you know, to live like that. I just... You know, she's never experienced what I've experienced. She's never experienced being looked at for the beautiful, you know, 
black woman that she is and human being that she is, but I want to put the word black because often that's not the projection we give, you know. Um, you know, on the best days she's called Beyonce and, she, and, and, and or Rihanna, but that also shows you like these are the only black references in a lot of Iranians' minds, consciousness is Beyonce and Rihanna, and they keep telling us we look like Beyonce or Rihanna. I don't look like none of them. <laughs> you know, it's just the only black women they know. So it, it took different forms that she, she rode the bus before, and there was this guy sitting in the back that kept, you know, using a needle, like the, the not the, the needle you, do, you used to sew, but he had one, and he just kept pitching her like this, you know, as she was falling asleep on the bus and he was sitting in the back. Now the buses are no longer segregated like in the 90s. Um, and he kept calling her, you know, CR, CR, CR during the whole, the whole thing. And she changed seats. I mean, it's, I'm giving you snippets of a life that's, I, I don't think I'm able to really translate um, how oppressive it feels. In the past four episodes, we've heard Puya, Nahid, Asal, Yegi, and Jason share their stories of Iranian liberation and the sacrifices they've suffered. As I interviewed Iranians for this series and spent months immersing myself in Iranian history and culture, I heard a shared theme. The current government has to go. The liberation from the Shah's Western-backed brutality was replaced with a theocracy that in many ways ended up being far worse. And in both cases, the West's racist and colonial engagement with Iran and the Middle East in general has contributed to Iranian suffering. What Priscilla has taught me is that Iran, like the United States and other nations, really can't be liberated until its black people are truly free. Just as Iran must reckon with this state-sanctioned violence, it must also address the racism black people have experienced in this role in the African slave trade. The Iranian diaspora must do better to amplify black Iranian voices and their calls for liberation. Black Iranians are being arrested and have been suffering for a better Iran, just like everybody else. Their calls for freedom aren't being echoed in a wider diaspora as they should. But Priscilla isn't waiting on non-black Iranians to amplify their chants, their songs, their cries, their demands, their hopes, their dreams. She and other black Iranians are seeking their own liberation because they, like black people around the world, understand no one is coming to save us but us. That's why they risk their lives protesting on the streets, their big, beautiful black hair, cornrows and brown skin radiating as freely as people dancing around them because at the end of the day their liberation cannot begin until the rule of the current government ends black liberation for black Iranians can only start with the fall of the Islamic Republic in Iran and then it can continue with a society that allows people to be who they are and dare I say even celebrates them for who they are instead of oppressing them, forcing them into molds and manipulating 
global audiences into not seeing any of it. So liberation for black Iranians starts with liberation, the same way liberation starts for any other black folks anywhere else. It starts with the absence of an oppressive state, which is this dictatorship we've been in for 43 years. Once this falls, I think you'll see much more of us. You're already going to see much more of us through the work that I'm doing, the collective is doing, we're all doing, you know. The collective is lots of folks in Iran. But in a obviously more radical way, this change, you know, can only happen once this oppressive system falls. Thank you for listening to the fifth and final episode of Liberating Iran. We spent more than two years working on this series and have a few people to thank. Financial support comes from Pelshire's Fund. We also want to thank Outrider Foundation, which supports multimedia storytelling about nuclear threats and climate change. Learn more at outrider.org. Music in this episode comes from several groups who are part of the Collective for Black Iranians, including Labyrinth, Proof, and Young Sutton. You can find these songs and more on the Collective for Black Iranians website. And shout out to the Story of Iran podcast, presented by the University of California, Davis. It's produced and hosted by Amy Mutlach, with assistance from Elmira Louie. We hope this series left you with a more nuanced understanding of Iran and a better idea of what's happening there with the protests thank you so much for listening and thank you to the people of iran for standing up to authoritarianism it's our hope that the protesters will prevail and that they get the change of power that they're seeking black diplomats will resume regular programming in a few weeks with a pivot to youtube and more video elements to make the show more dynamic and easier to follow thank you again for listening to the series and enjoy your weekend شهرم شدن گروه گروه و اینا تا میام میدن دورو دورو دو ولی میخندم چون میگن تورون دورو و ببین شدن همه قاتل خودی تو کل دنیا دیگه فاجه شدیم رفت وقتی شما تو شایه گمین به من زنگی زنن که معامله کنیم نه بیچز کامران برای همیشه زندگی توی گم